0: Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Uh, good morning, everyone. Glad you are here with us uh, this morning as we study the book of Acts. Uh, you already know this because you signed up for the class. My name is Jim Dalrymple. A um, couple just small things about me so that you know uh, a little bit about my context of where I'm coming from. Uh, I was a preaching minister for 10 years up in Illinois. Uh, nine years ago, moved back to the area here, and we did kind of the family church shopping. I don't really like that phrase, but that's kind of what it is. Uh, church shopping thing and uh, landed at Christ Church uh, loved it here, and our family has, uh, since the last nine years, has attended here and gotten plugged in here. Um, I've taught a number of classes. Some, some of you I recognize uh, from a number of those classes, Revelation, as well as some of the gospel content that we've walked through. And, uh, and I also teach over at Ozark Christian College. I'm one of the administrators uh, over there, and I love the opportunity to kind of have my feet in both of these places and uh, seeing how God is working. I, I love teaching these classes. Um, it's actually interesting when you have students at Ozark, they take attendance. And so students there have to show up on the morning. And it's always interesting to me like week two, week three to see you all come back um, because you all don't have to come back. And so um, I love the eagerness of uh, students here as we come together as a community, as a church uh, to study the word of God. And so one of the, the questions on the side, I won't ask you in the big group, one of the questions on the side that I will ask you from time to time is this question. So why did you jump in on studying the book of Acts? Uh, what was it? Uh, and, and maybe, you know, you might not have an answer to that, and that's fine. Um, but maybe it's something, a question that you have. Or maybe it's something in the book of Acts that you've always been curious about, or that you've always loved about the book of Acts. Uh, I love, in the book of Acts, the, the picture of the church. And the picture of what the church can be, should be, and yet still the brokenness of what the church is. And yet God in, in is able to use her, use us, I had a student who came up to me this week, in fact, it was in my uh, Gospels class, and she was, uh, or excuse me, Timothy Titus class, she was somewhat frustrated, um, because as she looks at the church, this young uh, person who is studying to be in ministry, she was looking at the church and she was recognizing um, how imperfect the church is, and how sometimes we get it wrong, sometimes leadership or uh, sometimes individuals in the church are are sinful, broken, uh, weak, immature. And, and she was just frustrated with that disillusionment, and, and we had this conversation. It was a very honest conversation about not only the church, but also us as individual disciples. And I said to her in, in this conversation, and I'll summarize it, aren't you glad that Jesus chooses to use broken and imperfect, not only people, individuals, but people collectively as the church? You see, as we open up today, uh, the book of Acts, one of the things we're going to discover is the book of Acts is deeply connected to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Um, I love it. In fact, I think it's on purpose. I don't know who chose the curriculum and assigned it to me, but I think it's on purpose that we're studying the book of Matthew, uh, one of the Gospels, and then coming here or later on going to Matthew's just third service, but at the same time studying uh, the book of Acts. They pair well together. And so one of the things we're gonna discover as we start out is this phrase that is in chapter one, verse one, that is this almost to be continued phrase that the gospel is going to continue. Jesus is going to continue to work and here's the connection before we kind of pray and officially kick this off. Jesus is going to continue to use imperfect people and collectively use them in what we call the church. And I'm grateful for that picture of grace end of the sovereignty and power of God to be able to do that, not only for them, but also now through us uh, here in Orinogo, Missouri. All right, I'm gonna open up with a word of prayer and then we're actually gonna dive into chapter one, verse one, let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. Uh, you reveal yourself to us. You reveal yourself to us through your word. God, you reveal yourself to us through creation. You reveal yourself most clearly through the sending of your son, Jesus. And God, as we study the book of Matthew in our main sessions, in our main services, and, and God, as we come in to hear and study the book of Acts, um, I pray that you will reveal not only Jesus to us, but also with clarity uh, who we are, our identity, and our mission, our responsibility as disciples of Jesus. And Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So I don't know, every class has its own personality. That's one of the things I've discovered after 20 years of teaching. It's just the way that it goes. And so some of my job the first day of class is to kind of figure out the personality of the class. It's kind of like being on a first date, as awkward as that sounds for me to say out loud. It's kind of like that. So here's my here's my opening question for conversation that I I actually want to lead into. I've planted the seed. Why did you want to study the book of Acts? I'm not gonna ask you a call on name, But I'm going to let someone volunteer up that information. Why did you want to study the book of Acts? Anyone want to speak up to that? Yeah? I think for me, uh, I came out of a a legalistic group. And so what I heard through all my years there is going to be different than what I'm going to hear now. Okay. So I just want to understand it better. That's, that's really helpful. That you have to know this, that when uh, you come to the book of Acts, some of you have some preconceived ideas of what the book of Acts is going to say uh, about the Holy Spirit, about the way the church should function, about who we are as disciples, about what the Holy Spirit can and can't do. And so some of us come with some preconceived ideas as we come to the book of Acts. Okay, What else? Why, why study the book of Acts? Why, why were you engaged in signing up? Or if you didn't sign up, you came this morning. Uh, why sign up for the book of Acts? Back in my Pentecost days, okay, and um, I think it's just a parallel one of the things that God's doing in my life to prepare me for you know for future marriage with Him, and okay, just every day, and knowing that you know, um, biggest thing I always say back in the side, you know, it's broken people leading broken people, yeah. What you from before is that, well, Jim, he has all together, yeah, like, I want to be like Good. Well, you're just a broken, dude. Help yeah. I'm a broken dude, so it's that brokenness and, and it's okay. I want grace to permeate the gospel, uh, the book of Acts, as well as it permeates the gospels. You know, sometimes we have the book of Acts and the kind of this modernistic idea that if we just put all the pieces of the church together the right way, the formula that the book of Acts has, then it's going to work perfectly and the church is going to grow. And that's not necessarily the case because we're a church full of broken people in need of Christ's grace. I love what Paul says about himself. I'm the first place sinner and I'm an example of who needs Jesus, uh, like that's the kind of person I wanna be standing up in front of you all, is going, I am not an expert in the book of Acts, first of all, I'm studying along as a disciple, on the road, trying to learn as you are. So there might be some insights where you go, uh, hey, Jim, wh- what do you think about this? And I might go, I have no idea, I've never thought about it that way, I'm gonna go study that the rest of this week and come back, and that's okay. And so I wanna be, uh, Mark does this, by the way, in his sermons, you'll hear it, he'll say, um, some of the experts have taught me, That's Mark's subtle way of saying, you don't have to come to me to get to Jesus. We're doing this together as disciples along the road. I love that about this place, is that we are not looking at a celebrity or any kind of a celebrity pastor, but we are looking to Jesus. We're focusing on Jesus. We want to do that in this class. Okay? Other observations of why come? Why come to the book of Acts? Why sign up? Okay, good. I, I love the opening line. If someone would um, read verse one, chapter one, verse one of the book of Acts. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions to the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you. And I'll have you stop right there. Okay, so again, what are some things that you notice or maybe some things you have questions about? I can lecture the entire time. I can talk the entire hour which is fine, but I'd actually love it to be uh, user interaction to where you come and so ask the question, here's something I'm interested in, and we can kind of poke at it for just a moment. Chapter one, verse one, what do you notice? What questions do you have? Okay, so there is a question here, and, and I'm, Dennis, I'm assuming that you're going, I know the answer to this, and that's okay if you don't, but, but right away, we have this like teaser that says, this is part two. Now, if you're watching, let's say, a Netflix show episode, and it says in the first episode or in the last episode, and you didn't watch that episode, you probably ought to go back and watch the, the previous episode. Now, we're not going to go back and take the previous episode as a class, okay? But you can, like, summarize it just like they do in a Netflix kind of review, right? In the, in the previous episode, duh, 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 I, I love the series 24, and it would just summarize like 10 episodes. You're like, wait, I didn't need to watch those? I could have just watched this little 30-second uh, montage. But in that, in that 30 seconds that we have in Netflix, Luke is doing this in this opening sentence. In my first book, well, I've already said the name of the author or who I believe to be author. I, traditionally, this is who the author is. His name is Luke. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we learn that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. Now, doctors in the first century world are different than the doctors today. Most often they were servants or slaves of a benefactor or of a household. Huh, that's interesting. And so Luke traveled with Paul. In fact, what we'll discover in the book of Acts is it's written in a third perspective, a third-person perspective, talking about Paul traveling, Peter, the apostles. But then later on in the book, it starts to be in a first-person plural. We went, and we traveled. And Luke is apparently now on the journey. Church tradition and our best evidence suggest that Luke is a Gentile. He's not Jewish. Now, here's where we can come up with that conclusion, okay? Again, Colossians 4.14, Paul is writing about Luke, says he's a physician, But if you back up in Colossians, and again, I don't know that you need to take notes on this necessarily, but this is why we know or why we think what we think about him. In Colossians chapter four, verse 10, Paul mentions some Jewish names and he said, these are the only Jewish brothers who are following with me. And then he mentions Luke after that. So apparently Luke's not one of those Jewish brothers traveling with Paul. That and the fact that he's picked up along the way in Gentile territory give us evidence that Luke is a Gentile. Why is that significant? I think here's some reasons why, and probably some reasons you care if you're not Jewish, especially, okay? Number one, Luke wrote, if it's Luke and Acts together, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. He wrote more than any other single New Testament author. That's significant. That says something about the new makeup of the church, that it's Jewish and Gentile together, that they are included together, or the Gentiles have been, this is the book of Romans, grafted into the people of God, But it's also significant because Luke's going to come out this story, the book of Acts, but also the gospel of Luke with a concern for not just the Jewish people, but for all people. And what does Jesus do for all people? Who is he for all people? If he is the Messiah, great. But if you're not Jewish, does it matter? And and Luke is going to share in this two-part series, no, Jesus came for all people. And that's really going to be important for us. So a couple things about this question, who is Luke? We've already mentioned the fact that he's a physician, that he's a Gentile. Watch for, by the way, medical terminology. That's kind of interesting. Um, Even in miracles, some of those things that pop up. Later on, Luke, by the way, has an impact on Paul when he writes 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy. And Paul talks about the healthy word of God, the healthy church, the healthy leader. And I'm like, oh, Luke's in the background of that. And, And Luke is actually there with Paul in prison while they are doing, while Paul is there awaiting his own death. And, and so Luke has this impact on Paul. Um, so a couple things that are interesting about the book of Luke and then the book of Acts. This is the in the first episode or in the previous episode. Uh, some things about it. At the end of the book of Luke, we have this really brief picture of the ascension of Jesus. But here's what's weird. It doesn't mention 40 days of Jesus talking to the, to the disciples, teaching them, And talking to them about his own resurrection and the kingdom of God, like what we find, and we'll talk about it here in Acts 1. If you went back to the previous episode, the end of the book of of Luke, what you would discover is that all the resurrection accounts seem to appear on Sunday, and then Jesus ascends. And it's kind of this teaser that goes, he's gone. And the book of Acts goes, okay, now in the previous episode, and it actually unpacks those details and fleshes them out a little bit more detailed to where now Jesus is around for 40 days. Is the number 40 important in the Bible? Yeah, it's a time of discovery of who you are, isn't it? As you journey with God the Father as he reveals himself to you, as you walk through a time of transition from one place to another place, 40 is really, really important. So Jesus is around them for a period of 40 days. Can I, can I say a couple other things about the book of Luke that are interesting to me? Um, when it comes to the book of Luke, when we have this conclusion, is Luke is going to have this resurrection account where Jesus is going to jump on the road with two disciples. It's called the road to Emmaus. And the entire way, he's going to talk about something. He's going to talk about they don't recognize him. He's going to talk about the Old Testament. And, and they're like, "Man, how have you not heard all the things that happened in Jerusalem?" They're like, "How have you not heard this?" And Jesus and Jesus there in his resurrected body, is, I think, with a wink and a smile, he opens up the Old Testament to them, and eventually, as he breaks bread, you know the story, perhaps. Their eyes are opened and they recognize him, and poof, he disappears. His resurrected body is different. It's different, like it was at the Transfiguration, when he appeared on the mountain with Moses and with Elijah. He's different, but he's still physical. That story for Luke is a little summary of what's going to happen in the book of Acts because people are going to go on a journey with Jesus of discovery. And and sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson, conversation after conversation is going to be, the Old Testament was pointing this way all along. And people are going to come to recognize Jesus and they're going to choose to follow him as disciples. And I love how that story for Luke is kind of a picture of discipleship. And he's going to unpack it throughout the course of our time together. The Ascension is interesting because it's only mentioned in Luke's writings. Matthew doesn't mention it. Matthew ends, not to take anything away from Mark Christian on Sunday, with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Still the same Great Commission we're going to see unpacked in the book of Acts. They go do that in the book of Acts. But if Luke didn't write, we wouldn't know the details of how that happened at first. We would know that there were churches but we wouldn't know some of the early details. Matthew ends there. Mark ends, if our manuscript evidence is correct, Mark ends with the disciples, especially the the women disciples who witnessed the resurrection, going away from the tomb afraid, and they don't tell anyone. Like, that's how Mark ends. And then I think later on, a scribe added, oh, here's some other things that happened from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Because Mark, the entire time, wants to give you this cliffhanger to say, are you going to tell anyone? The whole time in the Gospels, Jesus was saying, hey, I'm going I'm to heal you, but don't go tell anyone because my time's not yet. And then at the very end, he says, it's time to go tell. And they're afraid, and they don't go tell anyone. I think Mark's going, are you going to tell? Well, the book of Acts comes along. And we find out they do go tell. In the book of John, we just find out this little narrative about Peter and John, that Peter's going to die early when he follows Jesus, and John's going to live a long time. And, and we find in the, the book of John that the Spirit's going to come, Jesus kind of an awkward scene, breathes on them to foreshadow the coming of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come in the book of John. So in all four Gospels, we're left waiting except for the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus ascends. And I've given you bullet points here of the, of the importance of the ascension. and and what we believe about the ascension. It it really does summarize some things, and it helps us transition from the Gospels to the book of Acts and to the church. The ascension concludes the resurrection. Why did Jesus stop appearing to the disciples? Why is he not appearing to us physically now? Well, the ascension is a transition that says, I'm going, the Holy Spirit's coming. And Jesus promised that. In fact, John, in the farewell address, when Jesus is saying goodbye to the disciples, Jesus says this. I don't know that we firmly believe it. Jesus says, it's better for you, meaning y'all, the church. Jesus was Southern, you know. Um, It's better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor, the the one who will guide you and remind you and convict you. Now, notice in John, there's not a whole lot about like miracles. I I don't know that we should put the Holy Spirit in a box. Now, I mean that in one of two ways, going back to your comment and honestly, my background. I don't know that we should put the whole, this is week two, next week. I don't know that we should say the Holy Spirit has to do anything. That's not really a great thing to do to God, by the way. The Holy Spirit has to do miracles or the Holy Spirit can't do miracles. We're going to ask that question in chapter two. What's, what is our expectation of the Holy Spirit? Well, in the book of John, we have some things the Holy Spirit's still doing, reminding us, convicting us, comforting us. Those seem to be the primary roles. Jesus says, it's better for me to go away because if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. The ascension is a transition point. I'm leaving, the Holy Spirit's coming. Look at bullet point number two. Uh, The ascension creates this anticipation of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's like a birthday party that's getting ready to come. And, And I literally mean birthday party. Beginning of the book of Luke, what's gonna happen? What are they waiting for? The Messiah, the birth of the Messiah. They're waiting for it. What happens when the birth of the Messiah happens? Holy Spirit's all over the place, isn't he? Holy Spirit's talking to Zechariah. He's, he's involved with John the Baptist and the birth of John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit's all over these birth narratives. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's always involved in new creation. Oh. Then we come to a birthday, uh, a birth party or a birthday party in the book of Acts. That's next week, the birth of the church. And guess what? The Holy Spirit's going to be all over that one as well. You're going to find these strange parallels that remind us of the phrase, Jesus began to do and to teach. And this is a to-be-continued story. There's a reason why we've spent a lot of our time in chapter 1, verse 1. It's a lot to unpack. But you need to hear that phrase. In my former book, I taught you, O Theophilus, we'll talk about Theophilus in a minute, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus is not done, and I'm thankful for that. The Holy Spirit is still on behalf of Jesus making us new and using us for the ministry and the mission of Jesus. But we should also expect the opposition that Jesus faced. That's gonna be the book of Acts. The mission and ministry of Jesus continues, but we're gonna face some of the same opposition that Jesus is gonna face. The church is gonna look like Jesus. We should look like Jesus if we're disciples of him. (laughs) So let me get maybe on the sense of practical, and I know I'm kind of meandering a minute. On the sense of practical, one of my goals for us this class is not just to know more about the book of Acts, but more about Jesus, more about who we are as disciples of Jesus, and to look more like him as the church, as disciples of Jesus. That's our goal, is not just to know some more facts, what the Holy Spirit can or can't do, but it's to know Jesus and who we should be as his disciples, and how we can faithfully follow him. So I want this to become very personal to you as we apply some of these things. And some of it will be academic. And I think God can use those things to transform or rewire. That's our modern uh, uh, metaphor for recreated. He wants to recreate us into his image, rewire our synapses so that we look and model ourselves, our thinking patterns and our emotional patterns, and our stewardship of life after Jesus. Okay, a couple more bullet points under ascension then we'll move on, I promise. Okay, notice that, uh, bullet point number three, the ascension pictures the glorification of Jesus. Jesus is above all names. He's lifted up. He's above all kings. He's king of kings and Lord of lords. So when we get to Rome and Paul's on trial in Rome, Paul can be at peace. Why? Because Jesus is really on the throne. The ascension sets the stage for who's really in control of this entire narrative. I, I need that reminder daily. I can go to my journal. It's been the same journal since 2002. I, I get one New Year's Day every year. And can I just be honest, 2022 was a hard year to like start and be enthusiastic about. It felt like a false start over and over again the last few years. And I'm like, yay, another year. You know, I felt like blowing those little like whistles on um, the paper thing that folds out like a tongue. But it's like one of my kids have been using for about an hour and a half and it's like really like limp and lame. And it kind of kicking off the new year kind of felt like that, like <laughs> right? It kind of felt that way. Uh, that's, I don't know if that's true for you. But writing in, this, writing in my journal every year, one of the things I can look back on is that over and over again, doesn't matter how old I get, I constantly need reminded that Jesus is on the throne. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. That's why when Jesus left in the end of the book of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's one of the pictures that we have in the ascension is Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. I've given you the references there, but showing us that he is above this story that we are involved in. Now, Revelation, I just taught that for some of you that you were in that class. Revelation peels back the curtain and says, he's still in control. In case you forgot, he's still in control. Uh, Next bullet point. We find out in the book of Hebrews that alludes to the ascension of Jesus that this also is a picture of Jesus being in, in the throne of God or in the temple of God as our priestly advocate. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the reason we have access to God forgiveness and atonement of sins. He's, he's our high priest. So he goes, like the, high te- the, the temple, he goes to the temple, which is the very presence of God. And he goes as a sacrifice on our behalf and we have open access. It's why the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That temple curtain was 60 feet tall, by the way. That's not a small thing, that that temple curtain was torn and we now have access. And God's glory comes out to us. We'll talk about that next week. A couple other things. It foreshadows the return of Jesus. Book of Acts, we need to live with the phrase, you've heard this, uh, we need to live with the phrase, perhaps today. It changes how we live as disciples. In the same way that Jesus left, the angel says, he will return. And so we need to be ready, waiting for Jesus' return and live our lives with that kind of stewardship that the parables of Jesus remind us of is that servants who assume their master can come back at any day will work differently. I remember working at Kmart when I was in high school and the manager would come around and other high school students would be like, oh, the manager's coming. Like, what if you actually just worked as if the manager was always there, right? Imagine that. Uh, what if we were to do that as disciples? And then the last thing, uh, the, in Ascension enacts um, the passing of responsibility to us as the church, This is the departure of Moses to Joshua. Be strong and courageous because God is with you. This is Elijah passing the mantle, the cloak, on to Elisha. This is Jesus sending his spirit, saying, it's better for me to go away because I'm I'm sending my spirit to dwell in y'all. And we are then given a grace responsibility. It's a gracious thing to be called into stewardship and to mission in God's kingdom. Sometimes we feel like it's just a burden. Oh, God just wants us to do his work. Uh, God doesn't need me. I'll promise you that, okay? Um, There are times that I wonder if some other people who uh, need me, need me. Um, But the reality is is that God could do this on his own. It is a gracious thing that he has invited us into what he's doing in the world. And he allows us in our brokenness and in our our weakness and sometimes in what feels like our insignificance um, to be active in the world. So one of our questions is this, is how does the ascension shape our faith? Um, this maybe a reflection question for you. Uh, right away, we have this uh, fact that Jesus has ascended to the throne. And I've given you some bullet points. Maybe there's been some that have hit you of like, oh, that's something I need to reflect on this week. And, and so my challenge to you in this class would be to take a couple application points. Uh, maybe write them down. Um, right now, my application points I'm putting in this little space right here in my phone, between my apps at the top and my apps at the bottom, and it's just this like meditation verse, this thing that I need to hold on to and remember every week because I look at my phone a lot, and I just need to hold on to some points of application. Maybe there's something you need to remember. Our Father who art in heaven, And that little phrase. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is coming back. Uh, Jesus is watching over. Um, But I love that about the beginning of the book of Acts. So we discover this phrase that's right under the black line that says the prologues of Luke and Acts. We discover this is a two-part series, but we discover that the disciples and the church in Acts are a reflection of Jesus, and they are an extension of his ministry and mission. Therefore, they also experience his opposition. Acts is a two-part journey. There's going to be a number of reflections we're going to talk about in just a moment, but here's what I'd like you to do. Um, I'd like you at your table to read through these two blocks. They're both called prologues. It's just the introduction to the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts. I'd like you to ask this question. Okay, this question: um, What do I find interesting? Okay, what do I find interesting? And maybe what do I find the same? So I, I'm not looking for like five answers. And you're smart. You got them all right. Ding ding! You pass the test. I, I'm just asking you, as as adults who are studying as disciples, what do you notice? What do you find interesting at your table? I'll give you a couple minutes to read through both of those, discuss them briefly at your table, and then we'll kind of bring it together. Yeah, sorry, I didn't know you guys didn't have those. My bad. What'd you find what did you find interesting? What observations? I Never know how the whole table discussion thing's gonna go. It's always an experiment. You just like throw it out there and you go, I don't know, what's the high <laughs> Some people hate it, I hate it too. And I know I talk very fast. If you didn't know that already, I'm sorry, because day one, you're like, wow, he talks fast. Um, I had an older lady in our church up in Illinois who said, I listen to your sermons again on half speed, and it puts me to sleep. I'm like, well, thank you. On both accounts, I'm not sure. That's like a double, double uh, diss on that. Um, what, what do you notice? What, what, what's interesting to you out of these two prologues? You can tell they're, they're similar. and This is a part one, part two. You can tell that. Yeah. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, there is definitely an unpacking of, of saying, okay, I've told you the story. You have the evidence. And, and so there's a dynamic that we're going to pay attention to of the, even the orderly account, not only of Luke, but also of Acts. Uh, there is an orderliness to this that, that Luke has intended. Okay, other observations? not besides the apostles, that a lot of people were trying to yeah. get these events down. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it, like, to me, it says they've undertaken to compile, which means maybe they didn't quite finish it. Yeah, that's a great observation. In fact, uh, scholars have asked the question, when it comes to Matthew and, and uh, Mark and Luke, the three of those, we call them the synoptic gospels because they seem to see things from a similar angle, not the same exact, but a similar angle. People have often asked the question, um, did Luke use Matthew or Mark, or likely Matthew and Mark, as a source, uh, and, then, and then write his gospel and go, and let me add some details. I interviewed perhaps Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's some unique details about her in his gospel. And, and he acknowledges that, that as an eyewitness, uh, we would say an investigative reporter, that he did that. Now, that might be oral reports. He went and talked to people like Mary, tell me your story. Uh, the Chosen series has some examples of that, by the way, where they hypothetically are building in some of those reporting kinds of moments. Um, there perhaps are oral, oral things that had been written down in documents, but the church is collecting these things, but it's rather soon that these things are written down and collected by the church and received as eyewitness testimony. Notice how important eyewitness testimony is to Luke. He cares that this historically happened. In fact, to me, as someone who can be at times, someone who can doubt and be somewhat cynical, I don't know if I'm just alone in that. I don't even know if you're like okay with me saying that as an elder in the church here. But at times I can ask the question, do I really believe this? Because I've staked my whole life on it. Paul would say, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, that if the resurrection doesn't happen, then this is all just just, uh, in an error. Why are we doing what we're doing? And so it's a good thing to ask the question, did the resurrection historically happen? And to be honest, in high school and especially in college, I had to come back and ask that core question. I've had to come back to it multiple times in my life. Do I believe that the resurrection historically happened? And Luke cares about that question for you. And he cared to have eyewitness testimony. And he's not the only one. But he wants you to be able to anchor your faith to a historical context. That's why in chapter two of Luke, he says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, chapter three of Luke, he says, here's who's governor in Syria. He wants you to know this is not just a myth we made up. This is happening in a geopolitical world that is actually going on in the background as well. And Jesus is coming here. And, and I'll be honest, for me, it is the resurrection of Jesus that I come to every now and again. I stake that stake in the ground. And my faith gets anchored to it and wrapped around that faith. And that's what's happening in the book of Acts as well, is the resurrection changes everything. And and so it's really important for us. I agree with you. It's really important for us to recognize Luke cared about eyewitness testimony. Now, when he says orderly account, this is on the next page. When he says orderly account, it's a bullet point, second bullet point on the next page. We'll ask about Theophilus in a second. I want you to understand that when Luke says orderly account, he doesn't necessarily mean what we mean in kind of the modern West. When I say uh, orderly account, I think of like high school history class or, you know, I'm in a college, so college history class where we go, you have a timeline on the bottom of the textbook, and we're going orderly account. In ancient Roman biographies, which is the style that Luke is writing in, uh, orderly accounts included chronology, but it was a loose chronology, and what you could weave in is thematic content into that loose chronology as well as geographic content into that loose geography. And that would all be considered historical uh, by their context. And we would consider it historical as well. We just have to understand the genre. This is why Luke is the only one to tell the story of Jesus being 12 years old at the temple. Because ancient Roman biographies always, most often, let me not over speak, most often spoke of a childhood narrative of a king or of a general and says, as the boy was like this, so the man is also, as Jesus is in the temple teaching and the, the, the Jewish people are curious about him, he teaches was one with authority. So he also grows up in his 30s and he is found in the temple. And, and Luke takes that story and he's casting this, this story for you to say, this is historical, this is Jesus. It's an orderly account. It's Jesus moving geographically and it's a loose chronology. And here's the thematic connections. Parables are all lumped together in Luke. And he lumps some of those themes together. So when we look at orderly account, I want you to understand it how Luke understood it. And so we can understand him on his terms, not our terms. Uh, That's helpful in the book of Acts because we have this this background of history. One of them is this name Theophilus. Um, This name Theophilus um, is an interesting name. We don't know who he is. Can I just give you, out of curiosity's sake, some possibilities? His name means Theo, as in theology, as in the name of God, as in God. Okay, so God, and then Phyllis, um, we get like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay, This is the word for love, or one of the words for love. So he is a lover of God. Question, is that really his name? Or is this Luke saying uh, to the church, hey, for all of you who are lovers of God, here's some stories for you. Here's some accounts of Jesus for you. Maybe. Most scholars tend to lean toward, and the answer I have is I really don't know. Most scholars tend to lean toward that Theophilus is a name of an individual and that he was a benefactor who is financially underwriting uh, Luke's writing of these two. uh, This would be financially significant to write these two and have them copied and disseminated. That he's a benefactor. And Luke, in the same form of ancient Roman biography, is mentioning or giving him credit. We do the same thing in our books, giving him credit at the beginning of his book. And so that's a possibility here as well. Um, the the um, phrase that is associated with uh, Theophilus um, is likely that he's of a uh, equestrian order in the Romans, so he's of upper class, middle upper class, uh, able to financially um, support this book. I don't know, you know how significant that's going to be on the rest of your discipleship journey, so I want to use this as an example. Sometimes we get caught up in things that may not be all that significant when it comes to our discipleship of following Jesus. And we're just curious, and we like to spout off to other people things that we know. Let's not do that. Can I just say that? Like, if it doesn't help you become a better disciple of Jesus, say, I don't know. But here's maybe what it is, and let's move on. So, let's move on. Okay, a couple other things that are interesting. Um, I love, we've already said this. Chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, I told you all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This next set of bullet points are examples of things that Jesus will continue to do in the church. Does that make sense what I'm doing in this set of bullet points? Okay, so if you want to see Jesus at work in your life today, these are some things that we see Jesus doing in the life of the church. First of all, we've already mentioned the anticipation and birth narrative. I'm not sure why that column got off, by the way, but sorry about that. Um, So we have this birth narrative, part two, part two. In the church, We've mentioned that. Um, you'll notice that it's going to take place with the Holy Spirit in the temple. There's going to be people who are praying. So I want to circle that maybe. Prayer was significant in Jesus' ministry, was it not? What did Jesus do off at times when things got kind of crazy? He retreated and went to a mountainside and he prayed. If Jesus needed to kind of escape the chaos at times and pray, maybe we should too. Jesus chooses the 12 apostles. What did he do? He prayed before he made a major decision like that. And Judas is one of the decisions. Huh. So you're going to find that prayer precedes most of the major moments in the church where the church grows or it goes through difficulty. Prayer should be infused in our lives as disciples. If you're like me, we can get caught in a rapid pace. And prayer is one of those daily moments that cause us like Sabbath to pause and to realize that Jesus is still on the throne in the midst of the chaos. There's a reason why we're one of the most anxious cultures in the history of the world. One of the most depressed cultures in the history of the world. It's because of the pace we live at. And, and God taught us to live at a rhythm. And part of that rhythm is a rhythm of prayer. Part of that rhythm is a rhythm of Sabbath. God created us to breathe. You need to go. <sighs> when you hyperventilate, what do you do? <sighs> and you live that way. If you live with that rhythm in your daily life and you feel like you're not living life, maybe it's because you weren't created to live at the pattern or the rhythm that you're living right now. Now, confessing, as a disciple, I have to continue be, continually to be reminded of that same pattern. So we're gonna discover that prayer becomes a part of the rhythm. Bullet point number two. Over and over again, the disciples are gonna say this phrase, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Peter, In chapter 4, can I give you a preview? Peter is going to say that in front of Caiaphas and Annas and the high priests while he's on trial. The last time we saw Peter in front of Caiaphas, well, he was not really in front of them. He was in front of a servant girl is all in the courtyard of Caiaphas. He said, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And now he's saying, in the name, in the name, in the name. Why? Because the resurrection changed Peter. And they know that they're not living by their own power. They're living in the power of Jesus every day. Uh, here's another thing that's interesting. We're going to find that the church, the miracles of the church, oftentimes mirror those that Jesus had. Uh, they're going to mirror the, the tone, but also at times the, the exact kinds of miracles that Jesus is going to have. We're going to ask some questions about miracles. We're going to ask some questions in this class about the miracles of Jesus. Did Jesus heal everyone along the road? No. No. So what was the purpose of miracles in Jesus' ministry in the first part of this, of this two-part series? And then we have to ask the question, extrapolate that out. So what's the point of miracles for the early church? And, and then we have to ask the question, can the Holy Spirit, that's a dangerous question. Remember the whole putting the Holy Spirit in a box? Can the Holy Spirit do miracles today? And then the other part of the question is just as hard. Does the Holy Spirit have to do miracles today? Now, I've prayed for miracles. Still do. And sometimes my faith can be disillusioned when those prayers aren't answered. And sometimes when they are answered, I have to go, is that just a coincidence? I don't know. And so we want to ask some questions about miracles. But we'll notice that miracles are mirrored in the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. Discipleship journeys. My favorite. I've already talked about it. Road to Emmaus. Later on, there's going to be a guy on a chariot. He's on a journey as well. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. He's traveling, reading the book of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus was talking about along the road? The Old Testament. And as they're traveling along this road, one of the disciples is going to come up next to him is going to talk to him about the Old Testament. The Old Testament. And his eyes are going to be open. He's going to say, hey, let's let's go down to the water and I'm going to be baptized right now. I'm going to be a disciple right now. His eyes are open. And guess what happens to, to Philip, who's along the way? He disappears. When was the last time we saw that? Jesus on the road to Emmaus. These discipleship journeys are pictures of your discipleship journey, and and they're not meant to be just an analogy or a metaphor or a myth, but they're a reminder for us that this is a journey, a quest that we are on, And, and so we walk with Jesus and we discover who he is, but I don't know that this is part of the point, but can you and I acknowledge that there's times where it's like, okay, but it seems like Jesus isn't here now. he was there, he was speaking with clarity. And I was like, oh, wow, I see you so clearly. And then poof, he's gone. And you're like, what do I do now? And you just follow him as a faithful disciple. That's hard. And so there's some elements of this that I want us to pay attention to because the miracles kind of go away. They kind of slow down after the birth of the church and the inclusion of the Gentiles. It's not that they're not there, it's just they're not as dominant. And we're gonna notice that if you look at the whole of history, Redemptive history there are these kind of like rises and flows of the Holy Spirit doing different things and sometimes we live in the valley and God's not speaking and we have to ask questions so will I still be listening to what God has said as we listen to his word even if it's not emotionally or moving me in some powerful way where it makes it clear that he's here with me I can't see I can't touch um, so we're going to discover the the discipleship journeys so we're going to discover Gentile inclusion like If you're not Jewish, the fact that you get to be a part of God's people, that's really going to be important. Um, We're going to talk about the fact that um, not only did Jesus have trials, but we already mentioned Peter does as well, and Paul, and they mirror mirror the trials of Jesus. Paul's going to be on trial in front of some guys called Festus and Felix. Those guys have the same throne or position as Pilate. And Herod's family is going to come back into play as well. Why? Because if we're following Jesus, we're following his mission— following his ministry, but we're going to face some of the same opposition, and we need to have those expectations. Okay, a couple of other neat things as we kind of, and notice we have like a whole page. We're going to get through Matthias rather quickly, okay? But these are some really important things for us to frame up. Luke has written this two-part series as a quest narrative. Now, I don't know if you love quest narratives or not. I love some of them. Uh, Lord of the Rings is my favorite example, okay? Quest narrative, Frodo, Sam, get the ring to Mordor. And it takes forever for them to get there. And you're like, just get on the eagles, man. If the eagles were there all along, just get on the eagles and get to Mordor. Okay, but that would take away a part of the narrative. Okay, but, but Luke has written this to show that there is a quest, and that quest hinges on the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So if you pay attention to geography, the orderly account in Luke, one of the things you'll discover is Jesus is on a quest to get to Jerusalem. The entire gospel starts in the temple. And with this Roman context, Caesar was in charge. He's on the throne. And the governors have a census. And they charge the people of Israel to go to their hometown for home birth. So who's on the throne? Well, Caesar is on the throne. And he's the puppeteer who's commanding all the people to go different ways. The context of the beginning of the Gospel of Luke is very much Rome is in charge. Rome is in charge. And they're waiting for the coming Messiah. Then we get to the Galilee of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus' family get, and this is where Jesus' ministry starts, Galilee of the Gentiles. And you notice Luke doesn't include, like John does, Jesus going back for Passover all of the time, once Jesus is an adult. It's only John's gospel that mentions this going back to Jerusalem over and over again. In fact, it's John's gospel and the Passovers that help us build a chronology of three years of Jesus' ministry. In Luke, Jesus is in Galilee of the Gentiles, always trying to get to Jerusalem, and in chapter 9, verse 51, there's this phrase where it says, Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. And in fact, in Samaria, they're like, you're going to Jerusalem? Well, we're going to reject you. And that's when James and John go, let's call down fire from heaven on these guys, right? And and so, sons of thunder, there you go. Um, but there's a dynamic in Luke that's very unique to him. It's this quest narrative. Jesus has got to get to Jerusalem. So what happens? As he travels, he gets into the region of Judea. And then he finally gets to Jerusalem. You know this. When they get to Jerusalem, Jesus suffers, is rejected by the leaders, is sentenced, is crucified, is resurrected. At the end of the book of of Luke, Jesus' resurrection appearances never leave Jerusalem. It's unique to him. Matthew has Jesus go go back to Galilee, tell the brothers and Peter to go back to Galilee. There I'll meet them. Great commission. Why does Luke summarize the resurrection stories in these three little stories in Jerusalem? Well, because it's his quest narrative. He's, his entire goal for the narrative was to get Jesus to Jerusalem so that we could send people out of Jerusalem back out to the rest of the world. So this, there's a hinge effect. Um, people have talked about the structure where all of it is going toward the cross and I'm gonna, that's, that's the tomb, sorry. Okay, it's open, by the way. Um, maybe we should color it in. All right, so all of it is hinging on this and now we're gonna have this hinge effect where we're gonna go back out to all of the world, and we're going to carry out the transition or the change that has happened at the cross event, at the at the resurrection event of Jesus. So now we're going to find that you're going to be my witnesses. What's witnesses? Eyewitnesses, as in courtroom language, okay? Eyewitnesses, as in someone who's a friend who says, yes, I'm with them. Here's how this changed me. So we go back out and notice that the transition is they go to Judea. We're going to watch this in the outline of the book of Acts they're going to go to the region of Jerusalem, then they're going to go out to Judea, then persecution, not their own desire at first, is going to push them beyond that region to Samaria, the Ethiopian eunuch who's traveling south, and then ultimately to the rest of the world of the Gentiles. But we end the book of Acts in Rome, and there's this cliffhanger in the book of Acts. So what happens? Well, you're here today, because of what happened. I had a professor whose, um, whose license plate was Acts 29. There is no Acts 29. And, and the reason he had the license plate that said Acts 29 is, is his kind of play on this, this point, this cliffhanger, is we are it. Like we are still writing the rest of the book of Acts. And so we are a part of all that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. And, and we get to be a part of that. Um, it's exciting, but honestly, sometimes it's mundane. And I'm assuming that was true for them as well. They're waiting for the first part of this story, for God to do something through them. Sometimes they're in prison and they're just singing in faith that God's going to do something. I mean, we get the highlights of the story. It's kind of like a family scrapbook or looking at someone's Facebook page, the book of Acts can be. But there's days and months and years in between there where they're just waiting for God to use them in, in their own way and, and I just I love that fact about the story, is that sometimes it's just making ourselves available for the Holy Spirit to use, even though we ourselves don't have the power or the ability to, to change lives or recreate people in his image. Very different question. Yeah. Anyway. What time frame from Luke to Acts? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the beginning of the book of Acts is just 40 days later. Um, so we're right on the heels of it. Where they're waiting, yeah. So the the Pentecost time frame would be ten days. So there's not a long there's not a long wait time between the two. So Passover to Pentecost is a total of fifty days. That's what Penta Penta is the word for fifty. So it's a total of fifty days. Jesus appears to them over of a course of forty days, which we'll talk about this a little bit next week. And then there's a ten day waiting period. So not a long waiting period there. But then when it comes to the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to unfold over years, and so we're going to have kind of a a little short window of period of time at the beginning of the book, and then things are going to expand out. And we're just going to get these little mountaintops where Paul's traveling. But, like, it doesn't sit set there and spend three chapters on the fact that Paul was on a ship for three months. And it could. I mean, some of you have read books like that, by the way. And here's what I ate on the ship for three months. But the book, book of Acts is going to move on rather quickly. And, and so I just want to, I want to acknowledge this in my own faith life. Sometimes I find myself in the mundane and I'm going, God, when are you going to do something? And, and I want you to see that the disciples here have some of those same experiences where they are in faith, trusting that God can use even them. I love the phrase where it says that, you know, Peter's on trial with John and the Jewish leaders, Caiaphas, uh, they looked at Peter, John, they recognized they were unschooled, ordinary men. Love that phrase. But they also acknowledged that these men had been with Jesus. Uh, may that be said of you, that even though you're just an ordinary person. Now, I, I'm not trying to talk you down. I'm just recognizing you're probably thinking the same thing about yourself, that I think about myself. Unschooled ordinary. Um, I am like my name, Jim, about as boring as it gets, right? And, and yet at the same time, God can use us when we spend time with Jesus. Now, these disciples do not know it all. Uh, as a kid in flannel graph church, that, that dates me. Uh, I was last generation with flannel graph, I think in Sunday school, okay? Okay. Um, I always like viewed Peter and Paul and these figures as superheroes, heroes, kind of a flat character. They had doubts. They had fears, uncertainties, and weaknesses. Uh, they all admit that, by the way. They come to Jesus right away, and they said, Are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice right now they don't know everything yet. So we're going to ask the question in this class, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? But their problem is they still anticipate a kingdom that's an earthly kingdom with earthly power, And Jesus all along has been teaching them. I mean, he had this on his trial to Pilate. That's not the kind of king I am. So what kind of kingdom are we going to establish? An earthly kingdom? See, his disciples, we're still trying to establish our earthly kingdoms. And Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit next week. I mean, hopefully he sent it already. Um, But he's going to send the Holy Spirit in our study next week. And we're going to discover that this kingdom is going to look different. But it's the one that was pointed at from the Old Testament. So we're going to unpack kingdom next week. We're going to unpack Holy Spirit next week. And we're going to discover that, again, we're called to be witnesses uh, throughout. I'm going to summarize this last page in just a couple minutes because we'll come back to it. It's going to be our to-be-continued and in our previous episode. I do this in my classes at Ozark as well because I want students to come back. Okay, So in our next episode, we're going to ask a question about Pentecost. Is the Does the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, on the disciples, is the disciples that are mentioned, are they the 120 that are mentioned in this section, or is it the 12th? Because we're going to find they're in a household. So do 120 people, 120 people fit inside the household? The answer is probably we don't know, but we can try to make as best guess as we possibly can. But we have a question here about Judas. Judas has committed suicide. Um, this is the opposite of the repentance that Peter exhibited. He had remorse, and, and honestly, in some ways, he tried to atone for his own sin, Rather than allowing Jesus to atone for his sin, atonement really does matter. Who's going to pay the price for your sin? Are you going to self-inflict punishment on yourself? Um, or is Jesus going to take that from you? And so we have the suicide of Judas that's mentioned. Now, if you go back to the book of Luke, Judas threw that money in the temple. So how is it in the book of Acts that Judas bought the, the money? Well, the Jewish leaders didn't accept the money, remember? What they did is this is Judas's money, took the money out of the temple. It's unclean money, blood money and they bought a field for Judas, it happened to be the, also the same place where he committed suicide. And that field then is used as a burial ground. Now, some interesting things about this. When we have the picture, or the, the narrative of Judas's suicide, um, scholars ask the question, when did he actually commit suicide? That's pretty quick, by the way. Likely what happened is Judas committed suicide maybe even the same day that Jesus was crucified, but the gospel authors are not wanting to steal some of the spotlight of Jesus on the cross, if this is the case, you have Judas committing suicide at the same time as Jesus on the cross, him trying to self-atone for his own sin, and Jesus saying, I'm here to atone for your sin. Um, that's a pretty stark picture. Um, but what we have is, is in the book of Acts, the summary that says um, Judas was hung there, and then he was actually not taken down like Jesus was, but he was exposed. And what happens to a body, not to get gross when it's exposed, is it bloats. Apparently it falls and it, it explodes there. And it's this, it's this symbol of the shame of that act of rejecting the Messiah. And we have two psalms that are quoted here. Now, it would be worthwhile at some point this week um, to go back and read these two psalms. These psalms are of David, and he's crying out to God because people around him who are his advisors and his own son have betrayed him. Does that sound like a story that Jesus knows the sound to? yeah. And David feels betrayed by friends. And so he cries these things out, and he cries out for justice. That's why we have this echo effect that is here, Jesus, David's uh, promised Messiah that's coming to now reign on the throne forever. That's why we have these two quotes of these two songs, is they're songs of betrayal. And that leads us really to the last part of this, um, to where we find again um, that they bring on someone who was an eyewitness. Why 12? Well, because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And you're going, well, I don't know why that matters. Here's why it matters. Because they're restoring the kingdom of Israel. There's 12 tribes. They're going out and they are not starting something new in the church. I want you to hear this. The church is not a replacement of Israel. It is an extension and an expansion of Israel. Israel. The 12 apostles represent the 12 tribes of Israel. God is continuing to act in the same way Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount we just studied. I've come to fulfill it, not to abolish it. The church is an extension of Israel, grafting in the Gentiles, but not a cessation of the Old Testament and then starting something new, as in God saying, oops, I messed up, or Israel messed up so bad I can't do anything with it. No, he's saying, I have redeemed it. And now I'm fulfilling their ultimate purpose, which is to be a light to the Gentiles. That's why Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus opens up the Old Testament. That's why Isaiah 53 is opened up because Israel was always called to be a people who would be a light to the Gentiles. Abraham was always told, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars and the sand, and they will be a blessing to the nations. So the church is a fulfillment. The kingdom is, is an expansion of what God has always been doing. That's where we'll unpack when we get back together next week. Um, I'll be around for a little bit, but I want to honor your time. Going to try to be done around nine twenty. We'll try to start right around nine twenty. Uh, nine twenty every week. Uh, give you about five, 10 minutes to get in here from first service if you're there, and then try to get done around there. I could talk for another hour, um, but we are we are at the end today. So I'll be around here if you have a couple questions uh, next week. Chapter two, Acts chapter two. If you're reading ahead, we'll see you then. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.